you. Deuteronomy chapter 20 is where we are this evening. Moses nearing the end of his second of five sermons on the subject of obedience delivered to the second generation of the children of Israel to come out of the bondage of Egypt and um, obedience as we see. I mean, the whole, an entire book of the law, I mean, it's the whole book given over to one theme, obedience obviously very, very important to the Lord. And uh, I know it's important to us too. And uh, important, I mean, you think about when, what we're going to be heading through this evening. I mean, he's going to deal with some things that are just gigantic. He starts off with one in just a moment. And then he's going to deal with some very, very specific kind of areas of their life where they're supposed to handle it in a certain way. And it, and it makes us realize that uh, God is, he wants every part of our lives to be characterized by obedience to his word. Not just the big, gigantic areas and then the smaller areas we do whatever we want. And so as the Bible says, we're to do everything we do, we're to do to the glory of God. And so this helps them and us to understand what that looks like. Chapter 20, verse 1. He said, when you go out to battle against your enemies, and you know, we hate to see that word when, the first word of the chapter, to be used related to war and related to battle, but it is a reality in uh, this fallen human history, even for the children of Israel who were not to be a, a colonizing people or an expansionist military kind of people. They weren't trying to export through military means anything that they were about between them and God. But war was going to come their way. And even after the conquest of the land uh, of, of Canaan, uh, they would be attacked later in their history. And uh, David would fight many battles in leading the children of Israel into battle. Many of the kings would. And God wants the children of Israel to know that even when you go to war in my name or in representing me as my people, I don't want you to fight like everybody else. It isn't just a free-for-all out there where you just go out there and you slaughter people indiscriminately and you just decide what you're going to do in the heat of your emotions at the moment and all. He says, we don't operate even in war the way that the world does. I want, I want you to reflect me even in, you know, the most, one of the most intense uh, experiences in life, battle. I remember talking with a a uh, Korean War uh, veteran here in the fellowship and a Marine. And he, uh, he said one time, he said, well, you don't really know what you're made of until you're being shot at. So I guess so, you know, that's, I'm not going to argue with that. And, but, I mean, it, it tells you a little bit about where, who you are as a person, but all kinds of things get ratcheted up at that point. God said, I want even in battle against your enemies, I want you to represent me. So when you go to battle against your enemies and you see horses and chariots, remember the chariots were forbidden for them, and people more numerous than you, don't be afraid of them. What? Now, battle isn't watching a football game. Battle isn't watching, uh, you know, pro wrestling. I hope nobody, if you do, don't, e don't even let me know that you do. I'll, I'll have to fight for respect. 
But you know, we, sometimes we think we know a little something because we've got some kind of a video thing in our hands or we watch a lot of things or we read a lot of things. Well, you know, warfare and battles, as we said, that's a very intense experience. About as intense as things uh, get in life. And here they are, God is telling when you go into battle, not if, when you, God's people are always going into a battle, spiritual battle for us, where we are in way beyond our resources, in and of ourselves. So he talks to them, you're going to go into a battles where you are outnumbered numerically and you are out-equipped. And so when you do that, he said, don't be afraid. Okay. Uh, could you give me one really good reason why I wouldn't be afraid in that kind of circumstance? And he tells them, four. Four is a reason word, isn't it? For the Lord your God is with you who brought you out uh, up from the land of Egypt. God's the def- He's the defining factor in any battle, and certainly in any spiritual warfare. Do you know, I don't know how, I got to, came to know the Lord in 1980, and I have never known Him to lose a battle. I've never known him to lose in any circumstance that he's allowed to be God in the, in the middle of. People are willing to obey him in a, in a warfare kind of situation and the intensity of it. Now, you've got to give them time. You can't give them six weeks. Sometimes something happens and it isn't until six years later, 20 years later, and you look at it and you go, I can't believe it. God had the final say in this situation. And he does. He, he, it, he, he works these things to his appointed end. So he's to be trusted. And it's not like we don't have a history with him. He's the God who brought us out of the land of Egypt. So it's not like we don't know that he, can, can't, that he can't do these great things. And so it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. So you've got the priest coming out. You've got these, all these... You know, warriors out there and valiant and tough and muscled and battle-hardened and everything. And they send the priest out there. They send someone like me. So what's he got to, so what has he got to do with this? Get out of the way. Let's go out and knock some heads here a little bit. But they send a priest out to approach and speak to the people. And here's what the priest was to say to them. Hear, O Israel, today you're on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart... Uh, faint, do not be afraid, and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. And here's the reason. As the battle, it's a spiritual one. For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And they, they had to realize, that ancient warfare, they had to realize that what was more valuable to them than even their numbers or their weaponry was the fact of whose side is God on in this battle. And again, the children of Israel were not initiators in, in battles, defensive for what God had given to them. And they look and said, we know that God is on our side in this battle. It's a battle for righteousness' sake. And they were to be confident that they would be victorious in it. And I really like that about... Verse 4, because it really shows the priests were letting them know that God isn't like up there watching the battle 
Ooh, ooh, boy. So, it'd be one thing if it, God said, God is aware of everything that's happening on the battlefield. Hey, we're getting slaughtered down here. You know, it, he, he doesn't just passively watch and, oh, boy, oh, oh, you know. He's active in the battle. He's active in the affairs of, of this world. I think so, he's, he, and he's active on our behalf against our enemies. Sometimes it seems like, oh, they're getting away with murder. They're getting away, they're winning. No, not, not over the long haul, you'll see. And then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, What man is there? So you've got this whole army that's kind of assembled, who has built a new house, hasn't been able to live in it yet, and hasn't dedicated it. Let him go and return to the house, lest he die in battle, and another man go live in, in his house. What man is there who's planted a vineyard, so he's put in all the labor for, uh, for the grapes and all, and he hasn't eaten of it, there ha he hasn't been able to enjoy the first harvest. Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man eat it. And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? In that Jewish culture, before they would marry, they had like a one-year period where you would be betrothed to a woman, and it was like our engagement, only it was a much stronger commitment. One-year betrothal period where she was yours, you were... Uh, uh, she was yours, you... She... Went both ways on that thing. And so, in, in fact, the betrothal period, when you were betrothed to somebody, it took a writing of divorcement to end that betrothal. So here he is, he's betrothed, he's uh, to, going to be marrying in short order this, this woman, and, and they haven't been able to marry yet, and, and they were, it was declared, let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle, and then somebody else uh, marries her. And so those people were to be free to leave. Now, behind these three exemptions, I think there's probably uh, supremely the idea of dismissing people from the military that were uh, uh, excessively distracted by life. And you have the first man here with the new house. He's distracted by possessions. The second, the vineyardies. He's distracted by commerce. The third is his wife that he wants to marry. He's distracted by relationships. And, and in a battle, the intensity, life and death on the line in a battle, you want someone whose head is in the game, in, the, in what's going on here. You want to know the guy on your left hand, on your right hand, is, is, is engaged in what's happening here. And so uh, the, anybody that was distracted in this kind of major way, they were free to be released. Any kind of person with a divided heart uh, could head on, on home. And so uh, that's what they would do. I think that there may uh, possibly be humanitarian reasons in this where God says, listen, these folks have done this. They ought to be able to partake of, of these experiences in life before they run the risk of dying in battle. It may very well also be that um, these are speaking of younger men. And so dismiss them so they can go and have these things be a part of their life, have this be a part of their young adulthood. And as they uh, experience growing something from the land, establishing a household, having a wife, establishing a family, that they will then realize there, there are things that are worth fighting for in life. 
And so you lose them as a soldier on the front end in the early part of their adult life, but you will gain them as a soldier later on. Could be any of those things. I, I'm inclined to think that he was just removing people who were so distracted from life that they'd be a danger on the battlefield. And uh, so let them go. And then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who's fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. And so anyone that was fearful could leave. Wow. It's a pretty fearful place to be in life. So they, but he, he just, he, he, God did not want Anyone dominated by fear, lacking a faith in God in that battle, that warfare, he didn't want that influence to be in his army. He didn't want that influence to be on his line. All you got to do is just have a few people on a line start to, to cave and start to pull back when the line can be held if everybody holds, and now you've lost the whole line. You could lose a battle on it. So God said, let's not be trying to figure out what kind of soldiers we got out on, on that line. We want all of these to be men of faith, men who are not afraid of, of the battle. Everybody's got some fear, but not a, a paralyzing kind of fear where they would go home. You remember when Gideon, the book of Judges, God told him they had an army of 32,000 men, uh, Jews that were going to go and fight the Midianites. And, uh, and God told Gideon, listen, you've got too many soldiers. They're up against 132,000 Midianites. It's like five or six to one already. He said, you've got too many. Too many for what? Too many because I'm going to give you the victory, and you people, the way you think, you'll think you did it. So I won't get any glory. So God's going to, he wants to get the victory through our lives, but he'd like to get some of the glory too. He's going to put us in overwhelming uh, odds in, in that case sometimes. So he said, go and tell them, anybody that's afraid can go home. Gideon says, any of you that are afraid, you can go home. 22,000 out of the 32,000. Just headed off into the sunset, and he's left with 10,000. And then they still had too many. God got them down to 300. But he just didn't want that to be a part of, uh, of his, his battle. I don't know. It, it, you know, you take this into a spiritual realm, spiritually. I, I know for me, I wouldn't want to be on a staff, a church staff, or I wouldn't want to be with a, a, a ministry team where half the people, every time you got an idea and God's led us to take a step of faith and all they can see is what could go wrong in the city. You know, you want people of faith in God. And uh, so God said, let them go on uh, home. And so it shall be when the officers have finished speaking to the people, once you've weeded that group out, then you can make captains or uh, appoint your officers. We don't want any officers being appointed out of these other four categories. And when you go near to a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And so when they would battle, not when they were conquering the land of Canaan, but in later battles... For instance, under David, and uh, they, they would be attacked, and then they would fight against the city. They were to extend an offer of peace. You surrender, and and uh, and, and we extend a, 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 an opportunity to to surrender to them. So proclaim an offer of peace to them. Just don't go there and just slaughter everybody. And it shall be. If they accept your offer of peace and they open their city up to you, then all the people who are found in it 
shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. So you don't have to kill everybody in the city. It's not about shedding blood or any of that kind of thing. You, you put them in their place. Now they can be used for uh, labor or paying tribute or taxes toward, toward Israel, and that will be sufficient. Now, if the city... You extend the offer of peace to them. They will not make peace with you, but they make war against you. In other words, they're intent on, on wiping you out, slaughtering you. Then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, and that wasn't a, 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 an if, that was going to happen, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. All male combatants were to be destroyed. But, again, God is very measured in his judgment. It's not an indiscriminate slaughter. Notice what he says. But the women and the little ones, the livestock, all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall plunder for yourself, and you shall eat the enemy's plunder, which the Lord God, your, uh, the Lord your God, Gives you, and so they weren't to come in and say, "Well, all right, we finally broke in through the city, and we've killed all the males, and now is there just in this rush of emotion and revenge and the whole thing, they just begin to chop up women and children." They were not to do that, and and uh, they were to represent the Lord even in warfare. And thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, outside the land of Canaan, which are not of the cities of these uh, nations. But the cities of these peoples, uh, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, the cities in, in the land of Canaan, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest, lest is a reason word, they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods and you sin against the Lord your God lest you become influenced by their sin and their wickedness and then it, 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 uh, their influence for evil uh, God didn't want it to survive he didn't want it to be a part of any, any longer part of human history again remember we looked and said he'd waited like 400-600 years uh, patiently waiting for them to repent, they didn't. He said, it's like a tumor, take it out. It's, it's, it's going to destroy mankind if we don't uh, uh, deal with it decisively. And when you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. Uh, if you can eat of the tree, do not cut them down to use them in building siege mounds against the city or catapults or these kind of things. For the tree of the field, fruit trees, is man's food. Only the trees which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against that city that makes war with you until it is subdued. And so they were to uh, not to have in, in warfare kind of a scorched earth policy where they go in and not only defeat their enemies but then destroy everything valuable in their land, cut down every tree uh, in the land. They weren't to do that. So wood from non-fruit-bearing trees, they could be used but not, not fruit trees. And so again, you've got a battle going on, you've got the emotions running high, and they needed to remember that no war goes on forever. So one day this war is going to end, and when it does end, 
people are going to need to eat from those, those trees. And so they needed to take kind of a longer view of things. Otherwise, the war will be won, but then more people will die of starvation than ever died in the war. And so don't destroy your food supply in war because there's life on the other side of war. Uh, chapter 21. He deals with the shedding of innocent blood. If anyone is found slain, lying in a field in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it's not known who killed him. So here you've got a situation where you've got an unsolved murder. Somebody's just walking along, farmer goes out to farmer's field, and he's out in kind of a rural area. Wow, there's a dead body, and this person's obviously been murder. Now what in the world do you do with this as God's people? And, and so somebody's been murdered, but it, it, there's no evidence that can you know, lead them to, to a person. Then your elders and your judges, these are the civil leaders of, of the children of Israel, shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. So they would pace off, here's where the death occurred, and they would pace off and find out what was the nearest city to where this death occurred, and this, now the the investigation of this murder came under their jurisdiction. It's very ordered. God is a God of law and order. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man should take a heifer which has not been worked and which has not pulled with a yoke, so very innocent life, and the elders of that city shall bring down the heifer, bring the heifer down to a valley uh, with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. And so this, it's not a sacrifice in the sense that this animal uh, is never, uh, no blood ever flows from it. So it's not a sacrifice for the sin that's been committed. It appears that the animal uh, kind of is a representation, uh, being a young animal, an animal that hasn't been used for work yet, so it represents innocence and that kind of thing. So it's representing the innocence uh, of, of the victim here. And then the priests, so now you've got the religious leaders coming in with the civil leaders. The priest, the son of Levi, shall come near. And they're called to the scene, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. And so you think that, wow, this is just kind of a civil thing, and you just bring in the, the government leaders to take care of it, and yet God involves them, but he also involves the religious leaders of the community. He wants the religious leaders to be aware of what's happening in their city and around their city. Wants them to be aware of how their city is viewing law and order, uh, the spirituality of their city. If you had a spike in murders, you had a spike in lawlessness, well, that needs to be handled on a government level, but it also needs to be handled on a spiritual level, certainly among God's people. So they would realize, wow, we got a problem in our city. These people claim to know God, and yet everybody's burglarizing one another or whatever, whatever the crime uh, might be. And so they were to be, to be brought in to kind of test their own hearts whether they've been slack in, in developing uh, everyday rubber-meets-the-road spirituality in, in the cities that they're ministering in. And all the elders of the city 
nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And this seems to be uh, symbolizing the fact that these government leaders or officials were saying, kind of, they were expressing their, their innocence. We wash our hands here. We're innocent of, the, of, of what is, has happened here. And so it was a nonverbal way of communicating that. We don't know who killed this person. We weren't involved in it. And uh, we're innocent here related to. You remember Pilate on the morning when Jesus was being tried uh, prior to his crucifixion. And he, he endeavored to wash his hands. In fact, he washed his hands and he declared himself innocent, innocent of this innocent blood. The problem was is that he wasn't innocent. In, in his, you can do the ceremony if you want, but if your actions don't back it up, it, it's not going to hold through history. So Pilate, his name is Mud through history uh, because of that. But it, it was an ancient way of saying, We're, I'm innocent, I wash my hands of the whole, uh, the whole situation. And then they shall answer, so here's the verbal part, and say, our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our, our eyes seen it. Lord, we didn't do it, we didn't see who did it. Lord, if we knew who did it, we would judge them according to your law, but we don't know who did it. And then there would be the declaring a, a crying out, provide atonement, O Lord, so the wrath of, of your righteous wrath, Lord, that uh, this crime deserves, let it move away from us because we're innocent in it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel and atonement. If they do this, shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. And you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. It's an interesting ceremony. Some of you, some of you might be sitting here and say, yes, I, what in the world is that? They were never, ever to get used as God's people. They were never to get used to murder to the shedding of innocent blood within their borders. They were never, ever to get used to unsolved murders and just to say, oh well, what's for dinner tonight? What it says about a culture, what it says about a city, the crime rate of a city, how these things are handled. It's a reflection not just on the person that's doing the crime, but it's a reflection on the whole city. And when the city's name is associated with God, ours is not, then it's a reflection on God. And God said, I don't ever want you to get used to the fact that people are dying and their murders are being unsolved. Now, it's also interesting here as we realize that the, in terms of the, the Bible, the Old Testament, that the volume of the book testifies of Jesus. And so here you have God making sure that both government leaders, civil leaders, and religious leaders are to come together and investigate the murder of an innocent man. And on the day that Jesus was crucified... The Romans, the government leaders, and the religious leaders of the Jews united together to conspire for the death of the most innocent blood in human history. And they failed 
miserably this standard of the Old Testament. He said, when you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire her and would take her for your wife. So here's a young military guy and a soldier and he looks and he sees this captive and she catches his eye and she's beautiful and he's single and he decides that he wants to, uh, to marry her. So, uh, and, and he's in, in, intent upon marrying her. Then there was a process that he needed to go through. Again, it's the difference. God said, I want you to be a different people even in warfare. You just don't take these women you catch and just do whatever you want with them. You're my people. If you want to be with her, then you've got to marry her. And he lays out all kinds of requirements of a person that will want to become in, engaged with a captive woman. And, and I don't need to tell you, not just in ancient history, but in our lifetimes, all around this world, what happens to women who are caught in civil war and, 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 and uh, in warfare. And so he said this, this was, if he catches the eye, was to be handled in a certain way. And then you shall bring her home to your house, and you shall shave her head, trim her nails. And so those were just kind of symbols of a fresh start. Her old life is over. She's beginning a new, a new life here now. She shall put off the clothes of her captivity. In other words, and this is going to be happening for a month, so the man is, and he's not involved with her physically in any way, he's to no longer view her. The clothes go off. She's now clothed with, with Jewish uh, with clothes of a Jewish woman. He's no longer to view her as a captive. This is a woman. This is a woman who is now becoming a daughter of, of Israel. And, and so that was, all of this is designed to be changing his thinking in terms of who this woman is. And it's not, wow, she's a knockout and I want to marry her. No marriage is going to be so fun if that's the only thing holding it together. So then she's to remain at your house. Mourn her father and her mother for a full month. She's been taken away from them. So this is all going on for 30 days. It would certainly give this man plenty of time to think about what he's about to do. Sometimes, you know, you just say, wow, okay. And if, if it's like he could be married in, in 24 hours, you'd have all kinds of marriages going on. But, wow, okay, you know, week later, start to see, well, there could be some problems here. Months later. So it was a time for him to really think this thing through because God's going to hold him to the commitment that he, that he makes here. So for a full month, she was to mourn the fact that she'd been separated from her father and mother. And after that, you may go into her, be her husband, and she shall be your wife. And so they could then uh, be married and it shall be if you have no delight in her. So he looks and, and, and now she doesn't uh, please him after some period of time. We'll come back to that. So ladies, don't get upset. Um, I have no delight in you. Next. So that's not what's going on here. God, yeah, I have a clause for that. God has it right here, you know. The clause is, test your food before you eat it for the rest of your life. So the, the, 
well, let's, let's address it now that we've made a big deal out of the whole thing. So if you have no delight in her, when you look at how God addresses marriage in the Old Testament, it wasn't a thing of, you know, I'm tired of her now. I want, you know, I want, I want another wife. That's not, that's not, God had very high standards for marriage, and he was entering into marriage with her. But what you've got now is you, you do have a challenge here, because he is marrying into another culture. And, uh, and so she's going to bring her culture into that marriage. No matter how much, now she's in a different culture and all that kind of thing, but she's been fashioned by another culture. And, and there's a very good chance that she would look at things and say, uh, listen, I'm your wife, I get this whole thing that you people are doing here, but I'm not going to worship your God, I'm going to worship my God's. And, and so she refuses then to become spiritually what Israel is about. And it's probably that level of, of a crisis that's occurring within the marriage. So it shall be if you have no delight in her, then you shall set her free. Um, can't sell her. Can't, can't, she, she was your wife. She's not a slave. But you certainly shall not sell her for money. You shall not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. If a man has... Two wives. I, where do you put people like this? So he's got two wives, and, and I think it's important to say, well, two wives, what's God doing here talking about people with two wives? And, and uh, it, it, what, it was never, ever in the entire Bible is it God's ideal for marriage was never more than one man, one woman for life. Now, some marriages end because of, of legitimate reason and that kind of thing, but there's never to be this two-wife kind of thing. And one of the reasons, there's a lot of reasons, it doesn't represent the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. It's the supreme reason. But one of the reasons is that it would be virtually impossible for one wife not to become the favorite over another wife. So God didn't want this happening. I think probably what's going on here is you, you've got uh, having multiple wives was very common in that culture. And so maybe you have people who are coming into uh, Judaism, they're converting from the Gentile world or whatever it might be. They've got two wives. We know David had multiple wives. It was contrary uh, to, to the writing of, uh, of the scriptures. And it never, ever appears in a positive light. It's always trouble, even in the Old Testament. And so uh, for this, this very reason. So here he's got two wives. One he loves and the other... He doesn't love her as much, at least. And they've, they've both born him children, both the loved and the unloved. And if the firstborn son is, if, is of the wife who is unloved, then it shall be on the day that he bequeaths his possessions to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unlived wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength, and the right of the firstborn is his. So that would be the temptation 
wow, she's my favorite, and, and uh, I really like her best, and she's really putting the, you know, pressure on me, to, or maybe I put pressure on myself to please her, and by making the thirdborn son, give him the right of the firstborn son, because the firstborn was born to this woman that's not, uh, I'm, I'm not that happy with, you know, compared to the other wife. And so uh, God came in and said, no, you don't do that. Uh, you, 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 you're going to do marriage in violation of how I've got it in, in here, and you're not going to turn around this whole thing. The, the inheritance goes to the firstborn. And the, thing, the, thing, the reason that this whole thing is important is the firstborn son received double the inheritance of all the other, all the other sons. And, the, and then the more important thing than that was he became the patriarch of the family, he became the spiritual leader of the family. So it was ripping this guy off of a lot to just do this out of favoritism. God said, no respect of persons on this. You can't do that. And why would he tell them except that this is a temptation of that people were, uh, you know, uh, subjected to. I shouldn't say subjected to, but they chose to put themselves in that place. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, listen up your young people, who will not obey. So we're talking about deliberate rebellion against his parents. He refuses. It's not that he cannot. It's not that he's a four-year-old and we're asking him to do what an eight-year-old can do. It's not that he's a 12-year-old and we're asking him what only a 25-year-old can do. He can do what he's being asked of his parents. And he will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, he will not heed them. They've, they've done their best. They've done everything that they can in order to, to bring him in line and break him and have him have respect for the family unit and for marriage and for society and these things, and he won't listen to them. Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city. And then they shall say to the elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious, and he will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. So we're talking about an older son here. He may be late teens or something like that. He may be in his 20s and still at home or whatever. But we're not talking about a kid here. That's not what he's, he, he's talking about. So he's stubborn, he's rebellious, he won't obey our voice, he's just a glutton and a, and a drunkard, and he's, and he's a good-for-nothing. And uh, so they would uh, bring him, and because this boy, his child, is uh, living in this kind of a way, just defiant of, of all authority, at this point he becomes more than the parent's problem. Because if the parents can't control him and he continues in that condition, now he becomes a danger to society. So it was to move into the hands of the leaders of God's people to uh, you know, take it up in terms of authority and they were to now address the rebellion uh, of this son. They didn't wait for Columbine. They didn't wait for the parents to 
have their kids have videos online where they're blowing up trees and setting off grenades and shooting up forests and stuff like that and, and all. If the parents couldn't handle the kids and the parents knew this thing is out of control, these kids are going to go off and they're going to shoot up a bunch of people or they're going to shoot all of us in our sleep, they would move this thing along. And, and because it wouldn't just stay within the family, society was now in danger as a result of it. So they didn't wait, they didn't wait for the kid to act. They, they took action on it. And then all of the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. The parents were not to do it. The parents, they're too close to it. They were not to do it. The situation was to be weighed by the elders, the leaders of the city, and if it was in fact the dangerous situation that, that is described here, then they were to stone, uh, stone the, the uh, child to death. By the way, this is Old Testament. You can't do this. Stone them to death with stones, and you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And so uh, it would be a lesson to all of the other kids. You remember what happened to Simeon three years ago? And the kids knew. Don't be doing that stuff in this town. And, and, it would, and God believed in the deterrent value uh, of it. Now we read it and it seems like capital punishment is, is, is very, very harsh to us. It's kind of modern uh, uh, readers. Yet the community could not allow this rebellious kid to have his, his practices and his rebellion spread through everyone else. And so it isn't pleasant, you know. I mean here, uh, but there's... The recognition, I think, here on God's part that occasionally in this fallen world, as a circumstance arises, it has to be dealt with this kind of, of severity. Now, you could never bring that and, and enact that now in the United States of America. Again, we're not Israel, but to, I mean, the water that's gone under the bridge. But they were starting from scratch. So you, they, could, they were starting their nation at this point in time. They could set the tone. And you, again, you wouldn't have to do this uh, very, very often before people get the idea. And if we look at this and we say, wow, that's so terrible, that's so hard to go in and address these children that the parents can't you know, handle their rebellion and, the, and they're doing this whole thing, and what a, what a terrible, barbaric way. Yeah, it's a lot better to live in a city where 30% of the city's run by gangs because the parents wouldn't step up and, and control their kids. It's a mess either way. And so God says, we'll just clean it, keep it real tight on this end, and we'll, we'll, we'll lean toward the side of law and order, and then let the kids grow up in, in that kind of an environment. And so society was to step up, and, and they did. Again, this is Israel, not the United States of America. It's, it's another, it's apples and oranges. If a man has committed a sin that's deserving of death... He, and he is put to death, 
and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For, the Lord, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. And so in those days, the children of Israel, capital punishment was not um, done by hanging. A person would be stoned to death, then their body would be hung, for a day, as it, so everybody could see, this is the end of this crime. This is the end of this sin. Don't do it. There was a deterrent value to it. And so that, that was the warning. But that after a day, it had accomplished its purposes. And so God said, it's done its deterrent value. Take it down after a day. It doesn't do any good to leave the... the, the the body's hanging for a week and the, eye, the, the bird's pecking at its flesh and that kind of thing. Take it down and, and, uh, and go ahead and, and, and bury the body. Now, Paul takes and he quotes this passage in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, and he talks about how Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. When you saw someone hang on a tree in the Old Testament, it was an indication that person is cursed by God and he is cursed by man. That's what it symbolized. In other words, that was as low as you could go. And what Paul does is he redeems kind of the picture and declares that Jesus went as low as you could go in order to provide us with salvation. Remember on the cross, Jesus cried out to the Father and he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Father had to turn away from him on the cross. Man walking and milling around at the base of the cross, they were blaspheming him. You know, he saved others himself, he cannot save. If you are the Christ, if you're the Son of God, then come down off of the cross. I mean, he was getting it from, in, in one sense, from both ends, from, uh, from heaven, and he was getting it from man willing to do that, willing to bear that curse that we deserve for our sin, willing to take that place in order for us to be forgiven. Chapter 22. You shall not see your brother's ox uh, going astray, so this is a neighbor who lives near you, and hide yourself from them. You shall surely bring them back to your brother. So here is your brother, his ox has gotten out and is walking down the road and he's walking by your house and you think, man, I don't have time for this. I can't get involved in this. Let somebody else take care of it. And God says, no, 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 you don't do that. So we're a different kind of people in this world. And uh, so he, he prohibits this uh, non-involvement that we're prone to in our flesh. I didn't see any ox heading down the road uh, from Brother McGillicuddy. Uh, so you, you were to get involved if you're to see that uh, ox going by, you're to grab it, take it back uh, to your neighbor, your brother. And, and what is that a picture of? It's loving our neighbor as ourself, as Jesus said. The second great law of the law and the prophets. Love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love our neighbor as ourself. Jesus spoke about the golden rule. He who has the most gold rules. Well, that's the golden rule of the United States of America. But that's not the golden rule. What we would want other people to do to us, that's what we need to do for them. And so if my ox got loose or some animal got away or sheep or something, 
And somebody brought it back, thank you so much. And that's how we're to judge our involvement in other people's lives. How would we want someone to get involved in this situation on our behalf if it was happening to us? If your brother's not near you, he lives a long way away, and you may not even know who he is. But, I mean, this is somebody's ox. It's worth a fortune. And so somebody's going to come looking for this ox. And if you don't know him, then you shall bring him to your own house. He'll remain with you until your brother seeks it. I mean, those are valuable animals. And then you shall restore it to him. What's an ox go for today? Does anybody know? Okay, let's start with this. Anybody know a show of hands? Okay, we've got one back here. Got another one over here. Did I see anything over here? Somebody's pointing over here. Over here, over here, over here, over here. Okay, back here. How much? 800. 800. What do we got over here? What do I hear over here? What do I... We're in ready for the harvest party. Did you raise your hand? Did you know or are you just kidding around? Okay. So, 800. So, it's valuable. So, they're going to come looking for this. All right. So, he, um, then you restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey, and you shall uh, do, uh, and so shall you do with his garment, with any lost thing of your brother's. So, he expands it beyond animals, even to things that aren't as valuable, which he has lost and you have found. You shall do likewise. You must not hide yourself. And so, this is how, good neighbors, this is what. Um, when people have this attitude toward their neighbors, now you've got a neighborhood you want to live in. Now you've got a city you want to live in where people are looking out for each other. These are the things that make a city a rich, wonderful city. I mean, the thing about, I'd say it every so often, but the thing that makes Modesto the great city that it is, is that arch. Okay, just keep moving on this. No, you know better. You know as well as I do. It's the people. It's the people. I mean, you, the people change in this city, and I don't know what you got here. So it's the people. People looking out for one another, and and so this is something we can't afford to lose. I know there's money to be made in farming and those kind of things, but for the most part, it gets a little rougher. And so this was uh, you to not hide. Be, not be involved in, 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 the, in helping another person. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road. Need a little help up. Hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. So you're behind a barn. You see that ox goes down. Oh, man. Oh, it's going to set me back three weeks helping him lift that ox up. Now you've got to come back out there and help him get that ox up because that's what you'd want somebody to do for you. And get that ox some wheels or something, so it doesn't do that. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on women's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. And so having to do with gender differentiation, there was not to be any cross-dressing. Uh, men were not to dress in women's clothes, and women were not to dress in men's clothes. And you just think... Duh, I mean, how, does, does this have to be in the Bible? Except the country that we live in, and I'm sorry, I don't live in Brazil, I don't live in Chile, I don't live in France, I don't live in Russia, I don't live in South Africa. 
I live in the United States of America, so I have to apply the Scriptures here. Where in the state of California, you can walk into any restroom you want to, male or female, depending on which one you feel like today. And which one you dressed up like today. So, it's not a new perversion. It's not a a new abomination. So, this, you know, transvestite thing and all, it's old as as human uh, history. And uh, so there was uh, obviously a forbidding of transvestitism and this kind of thing, whatever the technical word is for that. But there was also to be, even a little more broadly than that, there was to be the forbidding of anything that blurred the distinction between the sexes. A person ought to be able to look at another person and determine immediately whether that's a male or a female. Just ought to be able to to do it. there's There's a lot of room... In, in terms of our culture and lots of different things and all, where you can, you can figure that out. But men were to be men. They were to look like men. They were not to be like a woman. They were not to be deliberately effeminate. And, and men are more or less masculine and effeminate, but they weren't to be deliberately effeminate. Women were to be women. They were to look like women. They weren't supposed to look like a man. They were not to be deliberately masculine. Because when God created man, he created male and female. Created he them. He's not interested in a third category. They're supposed to be male, supposed to be female. And so doesn't want us coming up with a third category here. Now this varies very much according to culture. In that culture, both the men and women wore robes, and it was okay. If tomorrow morning I come to church to work here, and one of the pastors shows up with a robe, I got a problem, because it's a different culture. So in those days, everybody wore robes, but the women would adorn their robes with jewelry and different kind of colors and things that would differentiate it from a man's robe. So you, you could tell even beyond the robe. But, it, you know, in terms of hair and how and those kind of things, you could tell this is a man and, and this uh, is, is a woman. So it's not saying that a woman can't wear pants and, and it isn't saying that the Scots can't continue to wear uh, kilts when it's appropriate. And uh, got to protect the Scots here. But so culture is to be taken you know, in, into account uh, on things, but within that culture. So a woman wears pants in this culture, nobody blinks, nobody says, ah, it's a man. No way, it doesn't happen. So you, you, all that's factoring in. The point is, is that you should be able to look at someone and say, that's a man or that's a woman, and they're, and they're not cross-dressing on things. And I'd and I, I just like to say uh, a little something about the kind of the unisex look that seems to always be going on and is uh, even strong right now. Uh, it's funny that the unisex thing always, it, it, the push is always the feminization of the male. It's never the other way. And you can have the feminization of the male, which is very strong in our culture. It's not a healthy, uh, healthy thing for a culture. And I think that as Christians, we have to have lines in our own heart. We say, yeah, the culture's doing that thing, but this is, this is now m- more like a, a girl or more like a woman than it is like a man. And then to reject that. Verse 6. 
If a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, with the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself for food, that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. Don't eat the mom and the kids. Don't, don't wipe out your whole food supply by eating two generations. Just eat one generation or the other. And you can't take the babies from the mom because they won't survive without the mom. So think about things, is all he's saying. Think, it, think things through a little bit. Let's not just wipe out an entire species of animal on the face of the planet just by indiscriminately, you know, not thinking things through. And, and, uh, and, and so think a little bit. Don't destroy your, your food supply. And the mother, let her be released. Let her continue to reproduce so that that particular animal is uh, always uh, something that you can put on your table. And then when you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. And so in that culture they had, uh, they did a lot of living on the roof. Even today you go to Israel, you go to the Middle East, lots of places in the Middle East, see any pictures related to the Middle East, and you see the roofs are flat top. And the reason is, is they do a lot of things on the top of their roof. It's hot! So the house is all stuffy and it's hot. We know nothing of heat here, do we? So it's hot and says, man, this thing is not going to, this place is going to cool down till two in the morning. But eight o'clock, it's getting cool on the roof. We're sleeping on the roof tonight. And so it was made flat. They'd entertain up there. They'd sleep up there. Some of the finest night's sleep I've ever had in my whole life have been on a roof. Not my roof. It's like this. But over in India, they got flat roofs just like that. You fall asleep, there's the stars out there, all the smell of all the spices and all the chanting and all the everything as far as you can hear, and it's just wonderful. And it was way cooler on the roof than it was in the house. I'd have never fallen asleep in the house. It's got to be a little bit cool to fall asleep. So that's, that's what they did. So a lot of things happening up on a rooftop. So you just build a parapet, which is kind of a little a, a wall up along the edge of the roof so that nobody could fall over. So here's again, having a loving my neighbor as myself, having a concern for their physical safety, and uh, because a fall from a roof, of course, a potential of great injury or death, and so a concern for beyond myself. I go, well, I don't need to put this up. I'm not going to fall off a roof. Yeah, but, you know, uh, not everybody else is... 60 years old and has enough life to realize that this is a dangerous situation. So uh, think, think beyond yourself. You shall not sow uh, your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together, one's clean, one's unclean. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together, and you shall make tassels on the four corners of the clothing with which uh, you cover yourself. And so... There isn't, these were just kind of outward things that they were to um, uh, uh, respect where they didn't mix seeds, they didn't mix fabrics. There's, to do it wasn't a sin, it was just 
um, this was just kind of a physical way of reminding them in different areas of life, you're a separated people. You're a holy people. And he wanted that reinforced when they were sowing seed in their field or they were making garments or, 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 or plowing or anything they were doing. That constant reminder, we are a holy, uh, uh, separated people. And so these things accomplish that. That's it. I'm stopping there. If you think it was controversial tonight, you ain't heard nothing yet. So we'll stop there. There's a lot in the remainder of this, this chapter.